Hello and welcome back to the Agri Futures Evoke Ag podcast, where we share the best conversations about food, farm and future. One of the big draw cards for the Evoke Ag event this year was the actor, filmmaker and director Damon Gamo. He's the man behind the groundbreaking feature documentary 2040, which explored what the world could look like if we were to take on only the most positive solutions for the health of the planet and our communities. This film was inspired when Damon considered what kind of a world his four-year-old daughter would inherit, and perhaps there's no more relevant film than it right now. At Avocag, he took to the stage, urging us all to take on our own climate change reclamation journeys. And in this episode, he shares his insights and discoveries into practical climate change solutions and some international success stories. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. I usually just start my talk with... um, Just a moment of perspective. We don't often stop to acknowledge the place that we're gathered on, our magnificent planet. We don't look at it from this perspective often enough. And the reason that we're able to gather here today is because of something called the carbon cycle. The carbon finds itself and moves around five particular regions of the earth. It's found in trees and animals, including us, in soil, in the ocean, in the atmosphere, and it's buried underground as fossil fuels. And as we're well aware, what we've done in the last 150 years is break the balance of that carbon cycle. And we've taken the fossil fuels that are stored underground and we've put them into our delicate atmosphere. About 40 billion tonnes a year into our atmosphere. An atmosphere that's actually thinner than the skin of an apple by comparison. That excess carbon has formed a blanket that traps the heat and we're ostensibly double glazing our spaceship that is hurtling through the galaxy at about 100,000 kilometres an hour. So climate change is just a symptom. Our planet's got a fever. It's risen by one degree since the early 1900s. And when we rise our temperature by one degree, we also get a fever. And it's feedback from our system to change our ways to slow down, to do things differently. So what I want to talk about today is how we can restore that carbon balance, but we can't do it without the help of farmers and without agriculture. But climate change is just one symptom. It gets all the media headlines, but there's lots of other symptoms. Our planet is giving us feedback. Our oceans are increasingly acidic, We're losing biodiversity a thousand times faster than normal rates. We have 60 years of topsoil left. And currently, we're on track to have more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. So what's the root cause of all these these symptoms? Well, I think the root cause is that we've predominantly created a system that is based on competition and rivalry. And it's a system that's given us wonderful things. It's benefited billions of people around the world, but they have come at the expense of our natural systems. And right now, we're getting the wake-up call. It makes sense. In many ways, we created this system based on nature. 
We say it's evolution. It's survival of the fittest, social Darwinism. A product makes it and survives. A product that isn't as good falls away. And that product then meets another product, and we start to form our hierarchies. This is why a handful of companies own our food, a handful of companies own our media, and a handful of companies are now owning our data. The justification for this is often that this is what nature does. But bear with me, because I'm going to offer a different perspective. Yes, competition exists in nature. But what we don't realize is that it's also contained within a symbiotic or interconnected framework. So a shark does hunt the fish. But they've evolved at a very similar pace so that the fish occasionally gets away. If the shark was able to develop its skills to be even greater than they are now, it would eat all the fish and then it itself would die. And this is what we've done as humans. We've been able to add technology to our evolution, which gives us the hunting skills of the shark, but we can build a super trawler that can catch hundreds of tons of fish in one catch. And we can move to different parts of the ocean, whereas the shark is only limited to that one part of the ocean. And this has completely knocked us out of balance with our natural system. We're now consuming 100 billion metric tons of resources every year on the planet. So that's minerals, metals, fish, forests, fossil fuels, plastics. The Earth can only replenish 50 billion. So we're using double what the Earth can give us back. And of those 100 billion metric tons, sadly, we're only reusing or recycling 8%. And at our current growth trajectory, we're going to consume 180 billion metric tons by 2050, which wipes out most living systems. So we stand right here at a fork in the road. Do we continue on the path that we've been going on and follow other great civilizations that have gone before us, the Mesopotamians, the Romans, the Sumerians, all of who neglected to take care of their natural resources? Or do we start to pivot and try and develop new symbiotic and more interconnected relationships? As you've just heard, I've spent the last five years trying to look for some of those solutions. I've been to about 17 countries and spoken to more than 150 different academics and scientists around the world to make a film for my daughter. I've got two daughters now, but my two-year-old at the time, I wanted to show her what the world could look like in 2040 if we put into practice these solutions that are available right now. And a lot of my work was came off the back of a really interesting conversation with an environmental psychologist named Renee Lertzman in the US. And she said that when we're only hearing how bad things are, when we keep getting this apocalyptic narrative, it actually activates part of our brain called the limbic system. And when that's activated, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex, which is where we problem solve and we think creatively. So we have to start telling new stories. To be truly radical, said Raymond Williams, is to make hope possible, rather than despair convincing. This is the only way we're going to turn things around. We need to bring people in and not paralyze them with fear. And of all the things I've found in the last five years, the solution that gives me the most hope is actually what's happening in agriculture. And in many ways, it's a very good representation of moving from that competitive and rivalrous system to one that is more interconnected. 
through no one's fault, we were all doing what we thought was right, we have been fighting nature. We have been controlling the land, pests, weeds. We plant monocrops where nature thrives on diversity. And we're constantly plowing and tilling the soil, releasing more carbon into the atmosphere. But there are new and exciting ways that are emerging with a raft of cascading benefits. With an increased sense of urgency, I met with Paul Hawken, who thankfully isn't afraid of heights. He's the founder of Project Drawdown, the first comprehensive plan to reverse global warming. If you look at the solutions that we model in Drawdown, they're virtual regenerative development. That is to say, the earth is better off, the people are better off, the communities are better off, the creatures are better off, the birds are better off. No matter what it is, they're better off for it than had we not done it. Paul suggested I first explore food and agriculture for drawdown opportunities. When you change agricultural practices related to food, you can do two things. One is you stop emitting carbon, CO2, but you're also sequestering carbon. So it's one of those sectors, yeah, that actually does both. It's a twofer, which is not only does it stop putting it up, but it actually brings it down. You're flipping a whole sector. Yeah, I think that people should be eating more fruit and vegetable and less sweet stuff, and so that the sweet stuff should be, um, like you should be rationed on sweet stuff. When I grow up, I want it to be National Hot Dog Day every day. I want to see more trees and also want to see chocolate raining from the clouds. <laughs> be more healthy. So that's all I really have to say about the food. Like, I wouldn't like to see so much people eating meat because that's animals. But I do like bacon. Bacon's nice. But it's still like pigs, and I have a pig toy. And when I eat bacon, I feel kind of sad. Soil's almost an unknown universe in that there's over six billion microorganisms of huge diversity in a, in a small spoonful of soil, of healthy soil, which, which is really quite amazing. Don't know who counted them, but someone did. <laughs> it's a tough job. <laughs> yeah. I was in regional Victoria in Australia to meet Cole Sice, a champion of regenerative agriculture. In 1979, we had a major bushfire at home, like a wildfire and lost virtually all of our sheep, which were 3,000 Merino sheep. I went from going okay to um, being broke overnight. So I had to work out a way of doing it without spending any money. And then I developed oh, a different way of farming, totally different through the 1980s and 1990s, which turned out to regenerate the land. Using a lot less chemicals and inputs than yeah. is traditionally used. That's right. And since I changed, I actually did the figures on it, I, I, I've saved over $2 million since I changed. Don't know where the $2 million went. <laughs> Cole helps farmers around the world use plants 
to pull carbon from the atmosphere and put it into their soils. Because our constant ploughing of the soil has released billions of tonnes of the stuff. Over the last 10,000 years of agriculture, the degradation of soils has been one of the leading causes of climate change. It's actually, as of right now, a larger cause of climate change than burning fossil fuels. I asked Cole to strike a farming calendar pose to explain how he brings the carbon back home. Plants use carbon dioxide and energy from the sun to create simple sugars. The plant uses some of these sugars to grow. The rest is pumped into the soil through the roots. These sugars feed soil microbes, which interact with the plant, and the carbon dioxide taken from the atmosphere is sequestered into the soil as carbon. So I've been lucky enough uh, since the film's been out to visit about 25 different farms that are using regenerative practices around the world now. And I am quite new to this, but what has really surprised me is the amount of life and biodiversity on those farms. You can feel the vibrancy there. And it makes me feel this is where I want to get my food from. And the other thing that's been a shock to me was learning how crucial animals are to regenerating those landscapes. As you're all aware, we're sort of stuck in a binary debate about meat versus anti-meat at the moment, but this huge nuanced space in the middle, I feel really needs to get out into the mainstream quite quickly. The benefits that we can have for our land by using the animals. I'll show you an example here from the University of Alberta in Canada. They've just released this study. The soil on the right is two identical paddocks side by side. The soil on the left here used traditional set stocking, just leaving the animals uh, where they are on the land. And the soil on the right was from using rotational grazing with the, with the animals. And the darkness and the richness of that organic matter in the soil, for, the, for those of you who might not be aware, has come from the atmosphere is now in the land, which is what we want to do. And there are just so many cascading benefits when we do that. And the number one is the microorganisms that Cole just talked about, the billions in that darker soil. Suddenly they play a really crucial role. They help to solubilize the minerals and make them bioavailable for the plants. So we can't have human health without plant health, and we can't have plant health without soil health. But then there's the sequestering ability. So we know that rotational grazing can sequester about two to three tonnes of carbon per hectare. Organic, uh, a, a, a hectare of organic vegetables will grow about one or two. But these practices are emerging now, intensive silvopasture and silvopasture, which incorporate animals with legumes and timber, Studies are showing up to 26 tonnes per hectare. So extraordinary benefits for the planet, that we need animals to put the carbon back in the soil. There's great stories of early settlers that arrived in Iowa and America who said that the soil there was 16 feet deep, and it's now 30 centimetres. So we have a huge potential to take that carbon from the atmosphere and put it into our landscapes. And it's not just livestock. This is a farmer who lives up in northern New South Wales. He's a macadamia grower who's taken out every second row of his macadamias to let in more sunlight, and he's planted the cover crops in between. There's vetch and lab lab, sunflower. Again, all the biodiversity's come back, and suddenly he's reporting the benefits to his yields. Much better quality. And then there's the water issue. 
which is particularly pertinent in our country right now. But as our climate becomes increasingly volatile, this type of farming has one more crucial advantage. For every 1% increase in carbon to 30 centimetres, we increase the water holding capacity of, of, of soil by 166,000 litres per hectare on every rainfall event. When it rains, the soil on the left, with more carbon and organic matter, absorbs the water and less runs off the top. Whereas the chemical-ridden soil on the right absorbs almost no water and allows it to run off taking the chemicals with it into nearby rivers and waterways. That's the way we can buffer against droughts and dry seasons. Grasslands all around the world, they, they virtually had a built-in irrigation system. And why this is particularly relevant, especially globally, is that as our climate increases and gets warmer, the hotter air holds more moisture. So our rainfall events and storms events are going to increase in their intensity and we've seen them already increase by 50% in the last decade. So we're going to have to find ways to be able to hold that water, absorb it into the land, instead of it running off and creating erosion. Two weeks ago, a study came out from the South Dakota State University talking about the economic viability of these kind of practices. And they compared 20 farms using regenerative agriculture to 20 conventional plots. And they found that, yes, there was a decrease in the yields on the regen farms by about 20% but they found the regenerative farms to be 78% more profitable because of the lowered input use and because of the end market value. And I think this is a really important point for moving forward. We took the film to the Climate Action Summit in September, uh, in New York last September, and all the discussion was around new blockchain technologies that are going to allow transparency for people to scan the barcode and see not only the supply chain of their food, but what the mineral quality of the soil is, how the animals are treated. And this new generation coming through, we're going to start asking those questions. The CEO of Maersk, who's the big shipping, biggest shipping company in the world, have a huge carbon footprint. He stood up at the summit and said, we can't get kids out of universities to work with us anymore. So we've pledged to go zero emissions by 2050, just so that we can have some staff. This groundswell of momentum is happening, and it's going to have an effect very quickly. We all know, though, that this uh, is a lot, not as easy as it looks, and there's lots of reticence, and there's lots of hurdles to get through, and it's not an easy transition. I've spoken to a lot of farmers as well who are interested in this, but are just scared to take the risk. So we do need to help them, as Frank was talking about before. What are the incentives that we can provide? My personal preference would be removing some of the 29 billion that we subsidise the fossil fuels with every year, and shifting just a little bit of that to the farmers, to start paying them to put the carbon back in the soil. But while we wait for that, there are really interesting initiatives emerging, as you know. Uh, we work with a group called Carbonate, which is Mike and Helen McCosker, a couple of farmers from Inverell, where the public can pay $8 a month, and that money goes to the farmers. They get paid for every percentage of carbon that they add to their soil. And we've had a terrific response from the general public who want to help, who want their foods farmed in this way. We are at the fork in the road. Every investment, every decision, every choice, every food that we eat now either takes us fast towards that cliff edge or off on a more uncertain, I'd say exciting path that fundamentally transforms how we interact with each other and all of our living systems.
but we can't wait for anyone to do it. We've got to do it ourselves. I'll leave you with my favourite quote. It's from the explorer Robert Swan. The greatest threat to the planet is the belief that someone else will save it. It's up to us. Thanks. This has been another production of the Rural Business Collective for AgriFutures Australia. Fleur Anderson is the executive producer and production and editing is done by me, Sky Manson. Evoke Ag will be returning in 2021 from Western Australia on the 16th and the 17th of February, one for the diary. To stay informed, head to evokeag.com.